Welcome to Tuning In, the podcast of the Handel and Haydn Society, recorded in Boston, Massachusetts. H&H is the nation's longest-running arts organization, founded in 1815, and since the 1980s has been a leader in the performance on period instruments of music from the Renaissance through the 19th century. In each episode of our podcast, we explore music and artistry and the way both weave us through society and life in general, within the early music field and outside of it. We highlight music featured during the society's past and that planned for its future. I'm your host, Guy Fishman. My colleagues at H&H and I are fortunate that when it comes to being joined by a soloist, we can rely not only on our own members to take on a leading virtuoso role, but that we are able to attract some of the most exciting artists appearing on the national and international stage. This season is no exception. One of our favorites, soprano Joel Harvey, is returning to Boston to sing in our final concert of the season, performing in Haydn's Creation. Joel maintains a busy career appearing in operatic roles as well as in concert. In the latter, she has sung with an enviable collection of top-tier orchestras, including the New York Philharmonic, Cleveland Orchestra, Toronto Symphony, the Orchestre La Suisse Romande, and others, and has appeared on the operatic stage with the Metropolitan Opera, Zurich Opera, Royal Opera Covent Garden, and the Gleimborn Festival, and that's just a short sampling I'm honored to have her as a friend, colleague, and guest today. Joelle, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. I wish I got an introduction like that anytime I went anywhere. <laughs> you can you can hire me to be your intro man. <laughs> you know, put it on your rider. And in fact, <laughs> you know that these episodes, I, I aim to make them entertaining, but I also would like them to be of some educational value to our listeners. And I'd like to treat them to a little insider terminology, and the term is rider. <laughs> which is a list that a presenter gets from an artist or a representative that describes requests and sometimes demands for what the artist needs on and behind the stage. <laughs> it can be a bottle of water, a sandwich, or 10,000 brown M&Ms and a crystal brandy glass. And <laughs> how, did you find, how did you find my list? I know, right? It's, 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 there's a website, joelharveywriter.com. Everybody should go there. Don't, don't Google that. Yeah. So it can be anywhere in between those things. And, you know, it's a little known fact that during the pandemic and now on your little time away from the international stage, you teach in your daughter's school. And so I'd like to start by asking, what's on your rider for the school? Like, what are your needs and demands <laughs> from this elementary school? Let's have it. Oh, gosh. You know what? Well, I guess my rider would mostly be directed toward the kids. And that's just for them to, to please... Stop talking. <laughs> Mommy has a headache. <laughs> no, it's it's very interesting because I've been with ages three through 12. The highest grade level at this school is sixth. And it's 
just some things are the same. Yeah. <laughs> there are noticeable differences as well, but well, yeah. I just think that it's so sweet that you do this and unbecoming of a of an international diva. So <laughs> it's time for you to come on. <laughs> it's actually it's really fun, and it it totally makes me appreciate. I never took education courses in college or anything like that, and so it really makes me appreciate teachers a lot more, and especially. Um, at this school, it's a public school, a Title I school. So there are a lot of needs here. I have started studying Spanish on Duolingo so that I can um, communicate with a lot of the students are primarily or, or only Spanish speaking. And so that presented some interesting challenges at the beginning. And I've picked up some things and, you know, added just like singing with different groups and different conductors, you add little things to your arsenal to bring with you for future endeavors. I feel like this is very similar. That's so cool. Uh, speaking of education, speaking personally, I don't quite remember when I decided to become a professional musician. I'm, I'm not even sure there was a moment that <laughs> I made that decision. I sort of remember things evolving and myself just kind of moving through education and starting to get work and being very lucky to do that. Mm -hmm. With singing, I suppose it's harder to pinpoint because so many people sing in some sort of way, and also because many fine singers begin working later than their instrumental colleagues. Mm -hmm. The voice takes time to develop. Can you describe the path you took from whenever it was that you knew you loved singing through your education and the beginning of your career? Uh, I think I'm a little bit the exception because from the time I was four or five years old, I just always loved singing. My mom tells a story about The Little Mermaid. I must have been five years old when The Little Mermaid came out, or four years old. And I saw it in the theater, and then I was apparently a few days later, and this is you know before Spotify and, and iTunes. <laughs> yeah. I was singing one of the songs that we had heard, and apparently I had it memorized. This is the way she tells it. She always says that she thought right then that, that music might be something for me. So I started voice lessons when I was in kindergarten and also piano lessons, which seems for voice lessons, it seems kind of silly to have a, a six-year-old take voice lessons. But I think it was more about just learning kind of an appreciation for music and learning how to sing with a piano, how melody and harmony and things like that go together and not thinking about <laughs> technique, like moving the air or sound placement or anything like that. But I just, I was literally always singing, always playing the piano. I also studied flute uh, and I played the organ at a few churches when I was a little bit older. And it was just always what I wanted to do. At first I thought that I would want to be on Broadway. And then when I was in sixth grade, so I grew up in New York state and there's a solo festival for any instrument or singing or whatever, you can prepare a solo. And one of the first pieces that I learned for solo festival was Caro Mio Ben, which is one of the um, 24 Italian art songs that, that everybody learns when mm -hmm. they're first mm -hmm. learning quote-unquote classical music. And I just loved that. It felt much nicer to sing for the most part than the sort of musical theater stuff that I had been singing before because I cannot belt to save my life. <laughs> like I can only sing and have voice. Mm. I can only belt, by the way. It's <laughs> all I do. Oh, it's a good, a good duo. <laughs> And so I think from that, like, I never really listened to classical music. I listened to some Rachmaninoff sometimes or not even really Mozart or Handel or 
or anything. That wasn't really until college. But also New York State has a summer school for the arts and there's a choral program there, which I participated in. And I met the woman who would eventually become my voice teacher at the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, where I did my bachelor's and master's degrees. And it was largely thanks to that summer school for the arts that I found out about different conservatories and universities that had really great music programs. But yeah, it wasn't really until college that I decided I wanted to be a classical singer, but I knew forever that I wanted to be a singer. Both summer camp and the moving force of a particular teacher had a lot to do with your choice to become a musician. Absolutely. I feel like I can relate to that, certainly. I, <laughs> I had some really formative summers. You kind of like want life to be like that, right? You, you wake yeah. up and... The place provides you breakfast and <laughs> and you spend your whole day rehearsing and performing and taking lessons and hanging out with people who are kind of just like you. That's exactly it. Yeah, it's, it's, and it, those are, you know, our, our listeners may not realize that these summer festivals and summer schools, summer camps, whatever you want to call them, are hugely formative and, and they really let you experience what it's like to be in this community, this musician mm -hmm. community and I, I don't know if I would have become a musician without it. and Totally. And for me personally, I mean, it's hard to believe now, but I was a total music nerd. <laughs> and then to go to a place where everybody's a music nerd. I know, right? <laughs> you go to a place where everybody's a music nerd, and that's no longer an identifying feature. Mm -hmm. So in looking at your past season, with, you know, accepting the toll that the pandemic has taken, it's it's notable what a wide variety of work you do and with some of the world's most amazing ensembles you sing in both concert productions and opera and i was wondering if you have a preference and what what that preference is based on i would say that my preference presently is definitely concert work and a lot of that preference has to do just with my my family life because I have a daughter who's six years old, as you know. Mm -hmm. And some people are able to go away and you know be away for eight or ten weeks, whatever the opera schedule requires, because that's generally much much longer than um, a concert schedule, which is I don't know four to seven days usually. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, I I am not the type of person who can just be gone for eight weeks at a time without seeing my daughter, except for FaceTime or whatever, which, you know, it's amazing that we have that, but it's, it's just not the same. Until she was in school, she started school in the fall, I was able to take her with me. She's probably been on uh, close to 115 flights at this point. And she's been all over the US and Canada and Europe with me, which was great. It's like, an incredible amount to have to organize every time you're going to a new place, yeah. especially in opera, making sure that you have childcare and have appropriate housing and all those kinds of things. With opera, you have fantastic music usually, and you really get to know the group of people you're with, and you basically play most of the day while you're at work. And for concerts, it's a much more condensed experience. You have one or two days of rehearsal generally, and then you do the concerts. I really enjoy that too. Yeah. Also, I hate memorizing, guys. I hate it. And so <laughs> for concert work, I generally get to choose whether or not I memorize something. If I have the music there, no big deal. Maybe some random person on the internet is going to make a comment about it, but I don't really care. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so concert work allows me to have my music in front of me if I want it. I can focus just on the music and about like making that 
exactly the way I want it without worrying so much about physicality or like being in just the right spot for my lighting or if the costume is uncomfortable, things like that, which I would have to consider for opera. And it also allows me to be with my family more. I'm wondering if there is any risk for a career like yours if you, I admire and respect the, the choices you're making and I can relate to the you know, I, I never go away for eight weeks, but even going away for a week is, is difficult when you have children. Yeah. Uh, but I'm wondering if uh, if there is a worry that the door will close for operatic roles, which I suspect at some point when you are able to do them, they are lucrative and I mean, it's a lot of work and high profile. Or do you feel like this is just something that you can do now and and re-engage with opera when the time is right? Yeah, that's definitely something that we've been considering. So this fall, fall of 2020, I was supposed to be singing Morgana in Alcina at the Royal Opera House. That's a handle opera. And it was going to be seven or eight weeks away. And because I don't live in Europe, that would mean that unlike my Europe-based colleagues, I couldn't just pop home on a weekend to see my family. And so after a lot of consideration, I decided to, to cancel that, which may very well affect my relationship with the Royal Opera House. But at this point in time, um, I, I'm okay with that. I have an upcoming contract at the Met doing like one opera a year and doing the concert work that I do is enough at this present time to keep me going. I turned 37 this year and so I'm getting to a point where if I want to continue doing opera, I kind of need to step up repertoire wise. People don't want like a 45 year old Susanna on the stage. <laughs> like mm. I can't run around and close all the doors I'm supposed to in the time I'm supposed to. <laughs> what are you saying about 45 year olds? Well, I, I know some who run very quickly. <laughs> well, <laughs> doing it while you're singing might be a yes. little bit different. Yes. But it's just you know, just thinking about those things. And I, I realize I'm in a place of transition in many ways in my life, becoming an older, an older female, as far as my voice type is concerned. And I guess the other thing to consider is that the people who make the casting decisions for these opera companies, they generally stay at their jobs for a decent amount of time. They're not there forever. And so when new casting people come in, if I decide at that point, that I want to try to get back into doing more opera, like depending on how old my daughter is or something like that. There are ways to make inroads again. Yeah. Well, I'm grateful that you're so generous talking about that. You mentioned the differences between opera and concert work. So we're talking about differences. You do a fair bit of early music, mm -hmm. as well as both 19th century and new music. I wonder if for instrumentalists, the differences are, are more clearly defined, right? I mean... Different instruments sometimes. <laughs> sometimes different instruments and certainly the approach. But I, I wonder what it's like for the voice. And I wonder if your approach to technique and to language or any other aspects of performance have to change when you're singing with period instrument ensembles versus with standard ensembles, even if it's the same repertoire. Mm -hmm. I have found generally that when I do, say it's Messiah, doing Messiah with a period ensemble versus you know just a traditional orchestra, that there's, and this is not a judgment thing at all, but just a lot more listening occurs, largely because it's able to due to the size, I think, and just due to what the different ensembles are accustomed to in their sort of traditional rep. I mean, especially like you and Aislinn at H&H, I so look forward to seeing all of you and making music because I know it's so collaborative and it's not just 
this one thing is happening and then this other thing happens to be happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with instrumentalists, oftentimes vibrato, for instance, is a huge issue. And there was a time, just as the early music movement was becoming more marketable and hundreds of recordings were being made and it was being disseminated around the world and maybe it was reactionary, maybe it was what people believed, but there was certainly a kind of sound, silvery, maybe a little smaller and Mm -hmm. not completely devoid of vibrato because in the voice it's kind of a naturally occurring phenomenon when it's focused and supported, right? As far as I know. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, that's freedom. I think freedom of the larynx results in vibrato. Right. So I'm wondering whether you want to speak to vibrato or other aspects. It's not necessarily what I hear today. And I I certainly love what I hear today. I I also love aspects of what I heard from the 70s and 80s. But are there aspects of technique that are necessarily different in Vivaldi or even in Haydn than they are in Mahler, for instance? Because of the Mahler that I sing, it's not so different. I think I would definitely use vibrato more consistently in Mahler and you know, if you were singing one of the first two sopranos in Mahler 8, absolutely. And there are times when you need to sort of slim the sound down and you, you don't want to just be singing full out the entire time, even if you're singing Wagner. There are places where you need to conserve either for energy purposes or just for communicating the text and the affect and all of that. I think what I have noticed, because I started singing professionally in 2008, and that's kind of when, as far as I know, Baroque music was like, really getting cool <laughs> and, and larger houses were starting to program it more often and listening to older recordings it definitely does seem like the thought especially for the upper treble voices at least was that it should be a slender sound all the time very little vibrato it seems to me like never really singing fully necessarily in whatever sound or whatever voice the person had something was always held a little bit back and so i feel grateful that that has been changing still over the time that i've been singing baroque music i think rather than vibrato being the sort of extra thing straight tone is sort of the extra thing now that that's used more as an ornament than vibrato being used as an ornament Mm. i think there's a different way to approach the vibrato sometimes too I'm thinking about when I sing Knoxville by Barber, because that's sung from the point of view of a child. So there's definitely that sort of slender, simpler tone that's required. But then later on, it does open up a lot. And I think that it probably opens up more in the Barber than I would typically do in Handel, Mm -hmm. depending on what it is. Mm -hmm. Like there are moments for sure where it can come out, but I guess inherently it just seems like it doesn't need quite as much. But maybe that depends on the size of the venue and the ensemble as well. Okay, so it sounds like not only the venue, the ensemble, but also the music itself and choices that you see available to you in the music yeah. is what informs your, your choice of technique, which aspects of your technique you're going to employ. It's not necessarily like a black and white, this is early music, I do this, this is... No, totally. Yeah. Because it also, it depends on it depends on the texture around you, right? As, mm-hmm. as a soloist for anything, instrumental or... Or, or vocal, if it's quite austere, you don't want to just be blaring away <laughs> on yeah. top of that. So if relaxation of the larynx produces a natural vibrato in the voice, is the absence of vibrato due to tension or like something that's, that's detrimental to the voice or is there a way to do it in a healthy way? There's definitely a way to do it in a healthy way. I think having to do it over prolonged periods, like in a choral setting, if you have a three-hour rehearsal and you're required to sing straight tone the entire time, that's that's definitely going to take its toll eventually, yeah. ha- having done that, yeah. I can say. <laughs> 
but I think there's absolutely a way to do it where the air is still moving and your body is still supporting without without gripping you know you don't want to grip these intrinsic muscles in your larynx you want to use the support from your body from your your trunk basically as long as we don't get lazy it works out all right is there a time that you can remember where you sort of became interested in performing with early ensembles or the the music i mean you mentioned this book 24 italian this is a yellow book that every singer I remember from my student days and now I'm a professor at New England Conservatory. I mean, you know who the singers are anyway. <laughs> We love them. And they all have a tattered copy of 24 Italian. This is a collection of 17th and 18th century songs. I'm not sure if there's any arias in there, but, but certainly songs from Concini, who was the first to actually write what we think of as song, you know, one singer, one accompanist, uh, 1602, very special collection of music. But you don't have to have a historically informed approach necessarily to study this music. I played Bach long before I knew anything about the early music movement. Is, yeah. there, is there a time when you became interested in it despite having done Baroque music before? Or did it just kind of happen and now you're routinely being invited to sing with these groups? How did it come about? The first time that I was ever conscious of singing a Baroque piece <laughs> was my freshman year of college. I was assigned La Shakyopianga, a Handel aria, mm -hmm. and I didn't know anything about the style at all. And so I just sang it the way that I thought it was supposed to be sung. And I think, again, inherently that that aria in particular tells you what it's supposed to sound like. I think it's just maybe my natural bend anyway. In college, we did Jephthah by Carissimi. And that was the first time that I sort of experimented with ornamentation and really with straight tone intentionally outside of the choir room. I just have always really loved it. I think it's so expressive. I got to be honest, I do not like bel canto music. And it's like sacrilege for a singer to say that. But I think it's so boring. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know if we should air that. I think we should cut that out. That's going to put you on a lot of lists. <laughs> <laughs> I just think, you know, people think Baroque music is, oh, it's so repetitive, it's boring. Well, sit down and listen to some Rossini and tell me what you think about that. <laughs> <laughs> Honest answer. Hey, I'm grateful. <laughs> I want to shift for a moment to a piece I think I know you like, which is Haydn's creation. And you're coming to, <laughs> to sing it with us next. In Haydn, you are taking up a role, right? Mm -hmm. First of the Archangel Gabriel and then of Eve. But this is not an opera, it's an oratorio. It's a staged production. If you call it even a production, a concert. And so I know when operas premiere, the original singer is set to create a role, sometimes to the consternation of the composer. <laughs> Verdi said, you know, nobody who ever created one of my roles did so a quarter of what I imagined the role would be. <laughs> But at any rate, you know, it, it means that there's more to that role than just singing it. Mm -hmm. There's the personality, the character. Is there anything in your approach to these roles in oratorio uh, that draws on operatic experience, or are you just a vessel to present Haydn's music in a way that doesn't require any kind of character building on your part? Probably more for Eve, pretending to be in love, mm. <laughs> and being able to go in and out of character, if you will. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a switch. I remember when we did Handel's Jephthah, and that was, I sang Iphis, and that was a lot of, you know, being really happy, being really in love, being really worried, being really sad, mm -hmm. <laughs> and being able to just, without much preamble, switch back and forth into those things. You know, the, the chorus sets things up to a certain extent, 
But again, the music tells you what to do. And I've actually, I've never done creation before. I'm super excited about it. Oh, great. We'll all be looking forward to it. <laughs> Speaking of looking forward, you mentioned a couple of things, but just for our collective ego here at h and is there anything in particular that you look forward to when you come back and, and work with us? Oh my gosh, yes. I love seeing everybody. It's been, I think, nine years. I've sung with you guys almost every year for nine years. And I really consider you friends who happen to be fantastic musicians. <laughs> well, Joel, I can assure you that everyone, both the musicians and the audience, are looking forward to hearing and seeing you again shortly. And I want to congratulate you on your success. And thank you so much for being on Tuning In. Thank you, Guy. Soprano Joel Harvey can be heard as soloist with the Handel and Haydn Society. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit our webpage at www.handelandhaydn.org slash podcast for this and previous episodes, as well as supplemental materials about Joel and Haydn's creation. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. Yeah.